I'm Pam Rogers, an attorney and a staunch Republican. I'm Mara Dolan, an attorney and a lifelong Democrat. And this is Going to Spirit, Politics and Crime with Pam and Mara. We may disagree on many subjects and topics discussed on this show, but our mutual respect for each other, our common experiences and the work that we do keeps us together. You may think you know the whole story, but you need to hear our rapid fire opinions from both sides. We aren't afraid to go there. We're going to spare it. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Going to Spare It podcast with me, your host, Pam Rogers. Pam, of course, is the staunch Republican. I am the other host. I am a lifelong Democrat. My name is Mara Dolan, and we are delighted to have you with us today. Yeah, it's great. To, it's great. I, I missed last week, and I apologize, um, but I'm back back in action, and we have a great guest coming on today. It's uh, Simon Rosenberg, and you can kind of probably tell the guests a little bit more about him. Well, Simon Rosenberg was for years sort of very well known in insider Democrats, but he did something quite remarkable last year. He was the one Democrat who said there would be no red wave. And of course, there was no red wave. And he had good reasons for saying that. So we're going to ask him about that. Ask him if he sees any future similarities where there are another red wave is predicted that doesn't come. Um, we'll be talking about Joe Biden's economic record and the presidency and why Simon Rosenberg says Americans are having a very good summer. Great. Yeah, I definitely want to talk to him about the red wave issue. It's really interesting. So I want to hear his insights as to why he did that. And I checked out his uh, his business or I don't know what you call it. Uh, his Hopium, Yeah, yeah. His Substack, Hopium yes. Chronicles, Hopium Chronicles. And uh, I was reading a little bit about his uh, thoughts on RFK Jr. I'd like to just kind of chat with him about that too. So sounds like a really I interesting guy. I don't want to talk about RFK Jr. I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> I'm not going to stop you from answering the question. I'm just telling you now. I think that whole campaign is shameful and a waste of resources and yeah, but at any rate, but since you all are here, we know that you were able to find us and we want to make sure that other people can find us. So please go to whatever your podcast platform is. We're on all of them. We're on Spotify. We're on iHeart. We're on iTunes, wherever there are podcasts, that's where you'll find Go Into Spirit. Subscribe and give us a five-star review and please follow us on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Insta at going to spare it. You can find us on YouTube and please drop us an email. So we know what you think to Pam and Mara at gmail.com. Yeah, definitely check out our YouTube. We have all our videos posted up there and you can see all of the crazy faces that I make. Because sometimes, sometimes I'll say, oh, if you can see Pam's face, but no, it's good <laughs> to actually see Pam's face. And now Pam, I think it's time to start talking about crime. There's a really interesting case you're going to brief us on. Oh my gosh. It's so interesting. It has been all over the news, but there was an arrest made a few days ago in the Gilgo Beach murders. And that is a beach that is in Long Island, New York. And I think over the past, say 10, 12, 13 years, there are about 12 or 13 bodies that they have found there. And they just arrested a 59-year-old man named Rex Howerman who is an architect in New York City, lives in Long Island, lives like a quarter mile from that beach. Hmm. Um, he, They keep mentioning how he is this hulking figure. He is six foot six and 275 pounds. So that's like literally, that's like a linebacker. Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. big dude. 
Um, so yeah, they have charged him with three mur- uh, three murders of women who were found uh, dead in 2010. Mm. They are looking into him being involved in a fourth murder. They just haven't charged him with it yet. And um, the really interesting thing is that the Suffolk County Sheriff, uh, Rodney Harrison, reopened these Gilgo Beach murders. They were all cold cases. He went in, he reopened the cases, and he started a dedicated task force of officers that were working only on this case or these wow. cases, so to speak, nothing wow. else. They weren't catching any new cases, that was just it. this. Um, and based on all of their work, which included DNA evidence, uh, cell phone triangulation evidence, which is really interesting. Whoa. Um, uh, did I say DNA? DNA. Good. Yep. Uh, DNA was found on one body. There was a male hair found on one body. And then mm-hmm. there was DNA of a female found on two other bodies. And the really interesting thing about that is the they allege that the hair that was found on the one murder victim belongs to Rex Howerman. And the female DNA that they found on the other body, or or they were wrapped in burlap, so it may have been somewhere on the, the burlap. Mm-hmm. Um belong to Rex Howerman's wife. <gasps> right. So I'm um, so there's no there's n- I'm not saying that like oh she's involved. I don't mean that. It's a well, <clears throat> it would say transfer DNA type case right. because you could touch any surface, pick up the DNA of whoever else was just touching that surface and then you can go home and touch your steering wheel or your car and that mm-hmm. DNA gets on there. So transfer DNA is you know, as a defense attorney, it's a great way for us to attack evidence. But in this particular case, it's, you know, it's going to be a little tough for him. Um, well, and of course, you know, in terms of defending this, uh, it, it's much harder to say that someone's wife's DNA was there by complete and total coincidence. Right. Yeah. 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 And that, I mean, my my thought is that at a trial, if they were to have a trial, right? You're, the defense is going to bring in a DNA expert that's going to talk about transfer DNA. Sometimes people refer to it as touch DNA, but mm-hmm. really scientifically in, in the criminal world, it should be called transfer DNA. And they'll bring someone in to testify about how unreliable that is and how DNA can be passed along and along and along and along um, in a lot of different ways and, and kind of debunk transfer DNA. But the uh, the hair male hair on the other body might be a little more difficult to explain. Oh my goodness! Now, Pam, you've talked about forensic genealogy before. Yeah. You're studying it, and I was actually able to speak much more knowledgeably than I would have in a private conversation because you educated me. So thank you very much. Um, but is was that involved in this case as well? No, it doesn't. Oh. It does not believe so. It it looks like the initial when they reopened it, what they initially did was they looked at cell phone triangulation. What is and, that? Okay. So what it is, is, you know, there are cell sites, right. you know, so CSLI, cell site locators. So at the time of the murders, they were able to kind of go back and see whose cell phones were pinging off of what tower in the region of the dead bodies and when oh. they were dumped. Oh. So they actually came up with, with a list of cell phone numbers that oh. were located in the area. Wow. At the time the murders occurred when they found the bodies. So they had a, actually a list of suspects at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And they started to kind of run things down from there and look okay. into each and every person using DNA. Um, so they were ruling people out. They were ruling people out. And they finally came to this guy and the DNA evidence 
sealed it for them. But it's the cell phone triangulation, which is really, really interesting. You can tell where someone is at any given time and you don't realize it because it's bouncing off. So this guy was buying burner phones. They had the credit card receipts that he was buying burner oh, phones. Wow. So and he then was the, trying. He was yeah. trying to evade yeah. being caught by cell phone triangulation. Right. Yeah. But it didn't work. Interesting enough, totally did not work. And then when they've executed search warrants, and today they're still executing search warrants on his home, mm-hmm. um, but on his computers, there are apparently hundreds of searches that deal with like, why hasn't the Gilgo Beach murderer been <gasps> caught yet? You know, and what's what's new in the Gilgo Beach murder investigation? And oh. what is cell site locator information? And so- Whoa. So he was he was kind of obsessed with it. And he was also going back and looking at the photos of the victims that were online, looking uh, at social media of the victims' family members. Mm-hmm. So this is this is an interesting one. Wow. Are there commonalities among the victims? Um three of them they believe were alleged sex workers. Mm-hmm. So they're thinking that is how he came in contact with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think maybe the fourth one as well. I don't want to comment on the other people that were found. I'm just not sure. He hasn't been right. charged with them. Right. Um, but yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. And yeah. he is, of course, innocent, just as everyone is, innocent yep. until proven guilty. But Absolutely. As, I, as I've said before, and we've talked about similar cold cases that are suddenly no longer cold. You can't yeah. be thinking about what this must mean to the victims, families, and loved ones to finally have some answers about what happened. Yeah, it must be incredible. Because I would think that after a while, you feel like, oh, this is never going to be solved. Right. Right. And and it probably keeps you up at night and sure. causes you a tremendous amount of stress. And, you know, they have mothers or fathers or loved ones or siblings or whoever. And it's a shame. The whole thing is a shame. It's a shame that these young women ended up oh, in this horrifying. position. It's terrible. It's, it's horrifying. And... Given the numbers of alleged victims at this point, you have to wonder um, how many others there might be and whether these killings are things that a serial killer would have just continued to do. So these these killings took place in 2010. It's 13 years later. Who knows what uh, this guy, again, innocent until proven guilty, though, might be capable of doing in the future. So it is incredibly important to get that person off the streets. Yeah. I don't know um, why the Suffolk County Sheriff said this, but he did say in one of his interviews that the reason why they picked him up a couple days ago, the reason why they arrested him and took him into custody was that they had reason to believe that he was possibly going to commit another murder. Oh, um, He did not expand on that. So okay. didn't know like why that was, there was no follow-up question to it. Um, and we don't know. So it's it's interesting, right? I mean, it's just fascinating stuff if if you like crime which you and I do <laughs> which, which we do which we do and now we are delighted to welcome Simon Rosenberg to the podcast today uh Simon you can find at Hopium Chronicles on Substack he has been i like to say sort of well known among sort of the insider and smarter well informed democrats but as of last fall he became sort of a national hero. He was the most optimistic Democrat in the country. He saved my mother a lot of anxiety. He was the one person who said that there would be no red wave. 
Now, before this happened, you could find him on MSNBC and the Washington Post, but now he's absolutely everywhere, and we are thrilled to have him on the broadcast or the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Simon Rosenberg. It's so great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity, and I... It's the first time I've ever been called a national hero. I'll make sure my wife gets to hear this. Well, one. like, like seriously, I had, <laughs> I had Democratic friends who were freaking out, yeah. and I told them what you were saying. So, tell us how you knew. How did you know there wasn't going to be a red wave? Yeah, I mean, it's simple in some ways. Is that you know the the whole national media really got fixated on a on a very narrow set of data, which was national polling and. You were only looking at national polling. The election looked like it was going to be a good election for Republicans. But when you added all this other data to augment from the you know the core polling data, the state-based polling data, the the state-based polling data data that was not flooded with Republican you know bad Republican polls, if you looked at voter registration data, the performance we had in the House races, the Kansas special election uh, outcome that took place, the early vote, which was very democratic, and all the money we raised. There were all these other measures of intensity that were pointing in our direction, showing that we were motivated and excited and, and they weren't. And so when you do data analysis and analytical analysis for elections, you can only make a conclusion that something's happening if all the data is pointing in the same direction. And all the data wasn't pointing in the same direction. It was pointing in different directions. And so what we kept saying is that we thought the election looked like a close competitive election, not a wave election. And, and we were right, thank God, um, that we were right about that. And what's been exciting for Democrats is that that basic sense of us overperforming expectations and doing better than we thought has carried over to 2023, right? We've done, we won in Jacksonville, Florida, and in Colorado Springs, Colorado, two Republican cities that have been long dominated by Republicans. We just flipped those mayoralties in May. We obviously won in Wisconsin, the Supreme Court race, where we got to 56%, amazing performance for the Democrats. And we won a really critical special election in Pennsylvania in the House. So we've that basic idea that we're overperforming expectations in the places where it really matters, they're underperforming has carried on at least so far, you know, through 2023. That's interesting. And Simon, thank you so much for being here. It's so sure. great to have you here. Um, first of all, I have to say as a Republican that I was so excited because of this red wave. And I was like, you know, my friends were talking about it and everyone's texting and emailing and everyone's like, this is so great. This is going to be amazing. Right. And then the next day we were all like, what the hell happened? Right. right. Like, what? Okay, nobody let us in on this fact that you know that it was not going to be a red wave, but I but we were totally counting on it because the press and the media had just like built it up to be something so huge. Well, can I just say that it's really interesting if you go back and look at the New York Times. New York Times did a whole big piece on this in the end of December, a front page story where Mitch McConnell's top political guy is in the story. I'm in the story, but so is and where McConnell's guy says this was never going to be a wave election. We never believed it was a wave election. And part of the reason it became a wave, right? Everyone thought it was going to be a wave in the spring. And then by the end of the summer, most of the commentators moved back to close competitive election because that's what the data showed. But then what happened is that there's some group of Republicans produced dozens and dozens of polls in the battleground Senate races that were false and wrong and pushed the polling averages down against the Democrats in those races, creating an impression that there was a wave, that the election was changing at the end. And so part of the reason the Republicans were bamboozled and, and, and you were disappointed is your own side created a false impression. 
um, which I, you know, Mitch McConnell's team believes that that impression of the red wave, that false impression may have cost them the Senate. And, and so we know that it cost us the House. I mean, I believe it cost us the House. But part of the reason that the media, right, to your point, settled on this was there was manipulation by Republican groups to create a false impression about the election. We've never really been able to figure out who did it, why, what their motivation was. I have my theory, but it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that, you know, Republicans, as we head into 2024, for those of you who hope to win and have a good election, you know, the battleground now, we've had three consecutive elections in the battleground parts of the country that have, where Democrats have done very well, where Republicans have not. We've litigated MAGA now in three consecutive elections and we've done very well. And I think it means that if your candidate is is feels like MAGA, right? They know what MAGA is there. They voted against MAGA three times. And I think the strong performance we had in the battlegrounds, where we got to 59 in Colorado, 57 in Pennsylvania, 55 in Michigan, 54 in New Hampshire. We just got to 56 in Wisconsin. I think the battleground has moved a little bit further away from Republicans after this last election, where once again, what was being presented to these voters was sort of a party that felt like they'd gone too far. And so I, I think that... The, the hill to climb for whoever the Republican nominee is in the battleground states that will determine the presidency, I think, is a little higher than it was even in 2020. Now, Simon, I know you're saying that America is having a very good summer, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But I want to start you off um, with a quote from Margaret Sullivan's uh, most recent blog. I'm a huge fan of Margaret Sullivan. Yeah, she's great. She, she's great. She talks, because quotes Richard Tofel is the president of ProPublica. Who said historically a president running for re-election with a 3% inflation rate and a 3.6 unemployment rate would be pretty much a shoe-in? Now, I think people just consistently underestimate Joe Biden. And I think they're just going to keep doing that. But he's got a point, doesn't he? Yeah, look, I think I think we have to recognize there's one other piece of the conversation about 2022 is, is that you know, we're still sort of on the edges of COVID, right? I mean, we just yeah. went through a national trauma. I mean, this was um, something that affected all of our lives in a very dramatic way. And I think people like the Great Depression, it may be that people don't feel good again for a long time, or that it's going to take something extraordinary to make them feel settled and that we're really on the other side and that this recent trauma of COVID is really, really behind us. I, even though we don't talk about it, mm -hmm. and it's not something we spend our time discussing, it doesn't mean it's not in the back of our minds, right? And so I do think that part of what's happening right now with Biden's approval rating is a little bit of a COVID hangover in a sense mm -hmm. that, you know, we don't really, we can't really trust that things are better. We don't really know, right? We just went through this collective trauma. I, I think the other thing that's going to happen is that, you know, there were reasons that, um, remember, in 2022, we did really well with Biden's approval rating being low, you know, about where it is now, mm -hmm. and with the economy actually not being as good as it is now. And so I do think that the, right now, look, if, if the if there's a perception that our engagement in Ukraine was successful and the economy feels like it was pretty good, he should get reelected. I mean, I think there really are going to be two fundamental sort of touchstones for his brand in 2024, because every incumbent is running on, did I do a good job or things better in the country? I, I think he can make the case that things are better. But I think the two things that are going to really drive that are going to be Ukraine and whether there's a perception that he's been successful there and we've been successful and whether the economy feels to people like things are better. If they do, if we're successful in Ukraine and people feel like the economy is better, 
he's going to get re I think he'll, he's much more likely to get reelected than not. And I think those are the things to stay focused on. I mean, there's lots of other issues that are going to matter. And if Trump's the nominee, his age issue is going to be it's going to be harder for Republicans to use uh, because Trump is only a few years younger than Biden and Biden, you know, and so I, I think that I think there's a lot of belief that Republicans are going to be able to use his age issue and kind of being a little bit out of it as a gateway to unseat him. I think his counter to that is, hey, the, I've done a pretty good job. The country's you know, better. We revitalized the West. And so all of his success is a way of minimizing the attacks on him for his age and being, you know, so-called a little bit out of it, which is sort of how they, you know, how the Republicans go after him on that stuff. I think it's a manageable problem as long as the country's doing well. If the country's not doing well, his age will become a bigger liability for him. Can I ask, that's really interesting, Simon. Um, yeah. Can I ask you more about Ukraine? Because when you yeah. were saying there was two things, I was not expecting you to say Ukraine. So why do you think um, Ukraine is a bigger issue? Because to me, it's not... I mean, I, I yeah. support the support what we're doing, but you know, I, I, I just yeah. I thought maybe you would have said crime or the Supreme Court or something else. So I think all those things. I I think that war and peace. You know, what usually drives elections, right, are peace and prosperity. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm. are we feeling secure and are we, you know, are we doing better economically? I think if the war isn't going well and if there's a perception that you know Putin has sort of rebounded, it will be deeply troubling for Biden's re-election. I mean, and, and I, you know, I just think it would be very, we've spent so much money. You know, the Republican argument, right, is that not everybody, but some are spending too much money there. We should be spending here at home, blah, blah, blah. I think if there's a perception that his big foreign policy initiative didn't succeed, it will hurt him. And I think if, if it appears to be successful, I think it's going to be an enormous, um, It'll be a positive on his balance sheet because he's going to be able to use it as a gateway into a bigger conversation around freedom, democracy, preserving our rights, preventing our rights from being taken away. It's it's a it's a much bigger set of issues around traditional role of the United States, more like a Reagan Republican, right? I mean, it feels more Reagan-esque, right? Then, and it and the contrast between Trump, if he's the nominee, being pro-Putin, being mm. you know squishy on the on America's role in the world and Biden, you know, feeling a lot more like a traditional American president, that contrast, I think, will be very consequential to people, in my view, right? Um, but we still, but we'll see. I mean, I just think the downside, as we saw with Afghanistan, when Afghanistan didn't go well, his approval rating took an enormous hit. So I think it will, it will matter. I, I think the issues around crime and um, that I think Republicans have been counting on, you know, was not didn't wasn't strong enough for them in 2022 uh, because in part you know the truth about crime there's just some basic facts about crime in America first of all it's a fraction of what it was 30 years ago I mean it's, crime is way down all across the country um, by huge amounts and and you know in Washington DC we have 100 murders a year now it used to be 800 murders a year in Washington right um, New York City has its lowest crime rates that it's had in modern the modern era the second thing is that murder rates are much higher in Republican states than Democratic states. Mm -hmm. And the idea that somehow Democratic areas are more full of crime is just not database. It's not based on data, right? And then the third thing is the murder rate, we know from this year has come way down across the country. And I think what happened was that during COVID, it, we should have expected the crime rate to go up. People were so unsettled, mm -hmm. right? People's lives were so altered. We had this national trauma. And of course, the crime rates were going to go up. They went up a little bit. They didn't go up that much. 
and now they're coming back down. And, and I so I, I think this issue, I think a lot of the issues that animated DeSantis and the Republicans during 2021 and 2022, the schools issue in Virginia, which to me was more about COVID than about woke, mm-hmm. about the, the urban unrest that we saw, the crime rates. Those issues, I think, will be very much, it, it, they could very much be in the rearview mirror by 2024. Mm-hmm. And so when I look ahead as a strategist, I can see our argument. Right. Our argument is we've done a good job, right? The country's better off, blah, 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 blah. What's the Republican argument? Biden's too old. It's not going to be sufficient because a lot of the, I, I joke that America's having a good summer. What's not having a good summer are Republican talking points against Biden, all of which have been basically evaporated, even just take the border. I mean, the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post, not the New York Times, the Washington Post had a story over the weekend about the border saying it's eerily quiet. I mean, Joe Biden's new efforts on the border has basically slowed the, the flow to the border in almost historic ways. And that's, you know, so crime is down, the flow to the border is way down, the deficit's way down, <laughs> you know, inflation's now way down, the economy's booming. I mean, I don't know how you run against him. I don't know where the place is you have to go. And I think what it means is all these attacks on him as a, as a leader, Hunter Biden, you know, the corruption stuff the Republicans are trying to push, his age, those become more important for Republicans because the other attacks on him as as president, I think, have become far less salient and will be um, far less successful less next year than they, I think, Republicans had hoped. Just turning back a little bit to the economy, you've spoken a yeah. lot about the Biden economy, pointing out such numbers as Biden has created seven times more jobs than the last three Republican presidents combined. And back to uh, the ProPublica president, he also said, historically, the press wasn't afraid to say when the economy was strong, which is a a really good point. But Margaret Sullivan herself said that journalists may not always have the economic knowledge or patience to delve into the policy details of Biden economics. And I wonder about this stuff. Because I don't think that's a complicated point. Seven times more jobs in the last three Republican presidents combined. So I'm not sure whether they don't have the knowledge or they're intimidated. They think it might be hard. It's not, is it? Listen, there's no factual case to make the case that the economy is not doing really well. I mean, we may be living in the best economy in the history of the country right now. It doesn't doesn't mean people don't feel it, right? I, I recognize there's a disconnect between the economic data we're looking at, right? lowest unemployment rate in 50 years, lowest peacetime unemployment rate since World War II, the lowest uninsured, lowest poverty rates in American history, right? Right. You know, you go down the list. I mean, the deficit is a third of what it was when Biden took office by GDP. You know, inflation is now down to the Fed targets. Our recovery, our economic recovery has been better than any other G7 country. Inflation here is half of what it is in Europe right now. Right. You know, even one of the big arguments, and you guys know this, the Republicans make is that Biden somehow waged a war on energy and that it's why gas prices went up. Well, gas prices are way down and we're going to produce more oil in America this year than any year in American history. So if he was waging a war on energy, he's doing a pretty bad job on it. And so all these measures, things are better. And, and I think the question becomes is how do we, if we can't convince people that the, and by the way another stat is that there's a the conference board um, tracks people's happiness at work and people oh. are happier at work today higher the uh, more people are happy at work today than they've ever been in recorded history in polling right what? and so yeah so I'll, it's in my stuff i'll send it to you the white house is now actually using this as well worker yeah. contentedness do you, some of that some hey, of that had to do Simon, by the way yeah go ahead do you think it's that because people after being at home 
<laughs> COVID for so long are actually just happy to get back yeah. into the workplace and socialize. It's, in a sense? It's, it's interesting. It's a great question. And what's interesting about the data, and you should look at it and talk about it on your show and see what people say, yeah. is that it's part of what's driving it is that people love working from home, actually, right? Because for people with families, they're spending more time with their kids and they're catching more Little League games. And you know, all those things are not commuting. All of us who've ever had to commute long distances know what a nightmare it is. Um, the flexibility that people have, the more the increased flexibility is a, ma- is a driver, but they test 20 different measures. And by virtually every measure, it's up substantially, right, from where it was a year or two years ago. And this gets to my premise that I talked about earlier is that I, I think talking about American politics without talking about the trauma of COVID leaves you in a place that is that is disconnected from people's life experience over the last few years. I think, to your point, I think people are so content in part because they are making more money. I mean, wages are way up in the United States. And, you know, for the bottom 25, 50%, we've seen a huge gains in income and wages, far more so than people at the top, right? Um, That people feel, I, I think there's a lot of data showing that people actually feel better about the country, their own life circumstances than they feel about the country. I think there's a sense that the Fed has data showing that we're, you know, people are at like 75%, yeah, I'm doing okay, but the country's at like 35% economically. And so there's this big difference. And you can imagine saying, I'm doing well, but if you're a Democrat, you look at the Republicans and say, I don't know, you know, they're kind of crazy. And Republicans look at Democrats and say, I don't know, they're kind of crazy. And so these measures of whether the country's healthy, I think are maybe not prescriptive to actually how people feel about what's happening in their own lives. And we're all going to be, you know, the good news is we're having a big conversation about this. I mean, the article you cite is raising questions about, um, you know, why is it that, you know, the listen, who just did major takes on this? The Economist, not a left-leaning publication, just did an entire cover story about how the American economic track record over the last 30 years has been the best in the modern world. Why don't Americans feel it? And then Fareed Zakaria did this amazing six-minute video showing how America is now stronger today economically than it's been in a long time. So we need to have this debate. I mean, the important thing is thank you for letting us air this out. And I, my point to, to the two of you is that I don't think it's healthy that people don't feel good about a country when it's doing well. Mm. You know, we need to take the wins when they come, you know, because things are not always good. They're really good now. Things are really good now. And we should give Americans permission to feel good about their country and feel good about this project called the United States and feel good about our democracy and our economy. And I this is where my big beef with Republicans are right now, which is that I think they're trying to deny Americans the ability to feel good about America, our democracy, the American project, our economy, each other. And we as Democrats need to fight that impulse to talk down the country and to be to let Americans, you know, have the the sort of the affirmation that they live in a good country and that things are good here and we can solve our problems. It's not all, you know, carnage as Trump discussed. And I I think this is really in some ways the most important discussion in the country right now, which is can we once again, I mean, I say I do a lot of talks about young people and youth voting, and I say, you know, one of the greatest gifts we could give to young people is to let them feel as, um, to, to let them love their country the way that we did when we were growing mm. up, right? I mean, what what an incredible yeah. gift yeah. we could give to young people who don't feel that way today, who don't have that sense of, I, I live in this historically remarkable country. We've lost a little bit of that 
we need to get that back. And we're not going to get it back through Trump's uh, plan, I believe. I think we're in the process of regaining our mojo as a country now, even today, right? There's data coming out today showing that China's had one of its worst economic quarters in modern history. Mm-hmm. Russia's stumbling, China's stumbling. America was you know, leading the world in NATO last week. America's strong. Joe Biden's been a good president. I would love it. It would be great for the country to have that sense that you know they live in a good country with a good president. We're doing good things again. I hope we can get there in the next year and a half. Well, this conversation with Simon Rosenberg is so fascinating. We didn't want to cut him off. That's just part one. Come back and you'll find part two with Simon Rosenberg. Hey, Mara, you know that people are constantly complimenting me on my beautiful hair color and my youthful looking skin. I tell them that not only do I work with a really talented master hair colorist, and a super experienced aesthetician, I use Monate hair care, skin care, and wellness products. Monate products are naturally based, reliant upon natural sources for their key ingredients, unique formulas, and proven benefits. Monate considers it their duty to protect their source, which is the beautiful world in which we live. I love these products so much that I decided to sell them so that others can enjoy their amazing benefits. Check out my store at PamelaRogersESQ.MyMonate.com. That's P-A-M-E-L-A-R-O-G-E-R-S-E-S-Q.M-Y-M-O-N-A-T.com. The Monate movement encompasses not only innovative hair care, skin care, and wellness products, but a genuine dedication to helping others build beautiful lives. Each month, I'm going to be giving away an amazing Monate product. So go to our website, which is goingdisparate.com, join our mailing list, and a lucky monthly winner will be selected. Again, you can check out my Monate store at PamelaRogersESQ.MyMonate.com. See you guys soon.